Welcome to Healthcare 2030. This program features conversations and interviews with respected healthcare industry experts discussing the latest topics regarding current issues today and the future of healthcare, innovation, and technology. To learn more about Oxio Health, head over to oxiohealth.io. That's www.oxiohealth.io. Now here's your host, Noel Guillama. Welcome to Healthcare 2030. My name is Noel Guillama, and I'm your host, and I'd like to introduce you to Carl Larson, my co-host. Well, good afternoon, Noel. It's good to be here, and uh, good to be back in the office for a short time. Well, it's uh, it's definitely been an interesting time, as we've been talking about the last uh, two podcasts. We've been talking about, you know, sort of healthcare in a post-COVID-19 world. Yeah. Um, I have to tell you, and I think I may have mentioned this before, so it may be repetitious, but I have a feeling we're going to be uh, more like living with COVID versus really post-COVID. It, it, there seems to be uh, a lot of challenges in, in seeing on the other side of, of this scenario. Um, and, and one of the things we're going to talk about maybe is sort of what, what happens the, the day after, you know, type of scenario. And I think we, we talked about it last time. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to go over a little bit of what we've talked about the last couple of podcasts, just as a summary for anybody that jumps in on this one. Um, and we're trying to make this a series of four podcasts about sort of the, the, the healthcare system uh, post-COVID-19. I guess we'll, we'll use that. Um, and, and, and what's going to happen. And we've seen... Uh, a tremendous movement in activity. We talked in the last one about sort of community-based care. Uh, we talked about sort of the what I called the the silver lining mm-hmm. uh, uh, out of this 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 pandemic and all the changes that are going on. Um, and we also talked about you know uh, interesting uh, evolving uses of telemedicine. Uh, we talked a little bit about IoT, if you remember, and yes. and how telemedicine IoT works. Um, we talked about the uh, ability of using uh, medical records, sort of EHRs, and if you tied the medical records to the telemedicine, to the IoT, with sort of the, 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 the trifecta. Yep. And, and we started you know, talking a little bit about technology-infused care. I think you talked about that mm-hmm. and, and how important that's going to be. And then we, we also uh, you know, paraphrase a little bit about, about transparency, hospital pricing, um, managed care future, um, understanding that it's all about keeping the you know the patient uh, well. Um, we also talked about uh, you know the potentials for uh, what could be happening happening with you know managed care um, and that important uh, factor. We also talked about doctors. Remember about doctors' cost, yeah, and how they worked with you know for their their staff and their the facility and and the burden that they have in maintaining that that mm-hmm. introduction. Um, and then we started talking, I think, at the end about uh, black swans. Remember, I think you take your critters. You, you, I don't think they're critters. Well, like black swans and gray rhinos. Broadly, broadly, they they are they are all animals. So, you yeah. uh, you you have this desire, I think, to start a zoo. So, uh, you uh, you talked about yes, the black swan, the gray rhino, and then you had uh, for some reason a golden rat. So I. Uh, I am really curious about how a golden rat fits into uh, this this podcast and how it uh, how it fits in with healthcare. I'm, uh, and well, and you did mention that this uh, in the Chinese uh, uh, 
year, this is the year of the rat, so um, maybe it was apropos, I don't know. But uh, can you give us a little bit of a an insight into what your uh, thinking is and, and how your zoology fits into uh, healthcare? Well, uh, that's a really nice way of saying it. <laughs> I tried to be. <laughs> what have I gotten into? Right? I was, yeah, I was That's much. Like, I don't know where was, you're going with this. Yeah, I was much nicer uh, this time than I was when we were talking before. All right, so here's here's the thought. The thought is that you know history has taught us that when really you know major events happen in society, you know sort of pre, even pre obviously pre the United States even so that something happens. The way society adapts, and 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 the so discussion was precursor and, type of event is really what it, it is. It's yeah. it, 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 it's a you know it, it it's a pivotal moment. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's a life altering moment. It's a tonic. You know all of these things that happen, and and what got me thinking about this was, you know I I was fascinated by the book about the black swans yeah, and and was, and and sort of those things that happen that are statistically improbable not impossible but improbable right. unlikely and it go the book the book is a fascinating book and it talks about um literally the the that 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 uh that it was believed that all swans were white until they found a swan i think it was in australia or somewhere that was black uh and sort of that that's something that happens that completely is unexpected i think we talked about sort of 9-11 even though ter terrorism had been around that mm -hmm. it was really a black swan event as to how it happened, when it happened, and all the separate circumstances. Um, I think we talked about Lehman Brothers uh, and their failure. In yeah. the, in Bear Stearns, yeah. And the, it, they were the big ones in the fall yes, of uh, 2008 that that really precipitated was already a bad thing. That really was a black swan. Uh, nobody had predicted it. They were AAA credit and everything else. And, and the ramifications were, were pretty material. Yes. Um, and then, but one of the things, so, and then, and then obviously this book about, you know, the, the gray rhino and, and we talked about the savanna and that you can't ignore gray rhino if it's charging at you. You, you, you well, you can, you, but it, you, uh, you, it's, you can, but it, it, it wouldn't be a healthy thing to do. Right. And that's, and that's the story about, about, you know, we talked about the, the, the predictions that we've, we've had for, for decades at least about what would happen in a pandemic. I remember seeing some, <laughs> some research back in 2007 and eight, you know, a company that we won't mention, but it was a technology company that had done a what if scenario right. at the time, you know, sort of around the time sort of the, of the bird flu, right? And, and they said, here's what could happen. And, and for some reason, their, their prototype started in China or in Asia, at least, if not China. And it showed how fast it will go global. So this has literally been forecast where, what it is, what, what, where there was a coronavirus, some other vi virus was not predictable. Um, but, but there was something going to happen and it was gonna go you know, international in a matter of hours. Yeah, the, the issue of the uh, epidemic or even a pandemic is uh, it's not new. Uh, we've, we've had them for decade upon decade upon century upon century. And uh, you could trace them way, way, way back to uh, early, early history. But uh, we're told now, uh, at least what I have read, to anticipate something on the order of every 10 years, uh, that something will arise that um, will be sort of not a black swan or even a gray, gray rhino, but will be something that we'll need to take notice of. So, well, I, I, think, I think, again, we've lived through some. Yeah. Um, I remember living here in West Palm Beach, Florida. Um, literally, I think it was 1970, 71, mm -hmm. 
when they were talking about the Hong Kong Hong flu. Hong Kong flu. That's and right. it was a big deal. Even though it was a really, this is a sleepy town then. It's still pretty small, but it was really sleepy then. Yeah. And it was it was talked about in Miami and a lot of other places. And I don't know how big it was or how relative. We don't know what COVID's going to be yet or COVID-19 is going to be. Um, but it happened. If you read back history, you, you hear about the Russian the Russian flu and the Asian flu and, and there's a bunch of stuff. So it seems to be something a society is, is going to continue with. But now we have, you know, jets that go across the country. I mean, it's, uh, you know, our, our, our listeners may not know, but last year I went to, uh, to the UAE uh, for a conference and to meet with some people. And it was remarkable that I could board a plane in New York, literally, and then, you know, fly uh, nonstop from New York to uh, Abu Dhabi in, in a really comfortable plane, mm-hmm. the the 380, which I know you love planes. And it was just remarkable. And then I was there for a couple of few days and I flew right back and literally flew halfway across the world, um, certainly my world. Um, and it was remarkable. So you could literally move. So imagine somebody, you know, it's been said that it came from Wuhan. Mm-hmm. Wuhan to, to Abu Dhabi, is not a big jump, <laughs> and 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 the jump from Abu Dhabi to to New York was not a big jump, and then New York to West Palm Beach, so it literally a virus could travel around the world in maybe seventy two hours. Right. That's if that, that's with, hours. Yeah, yes. that that's you know with with layovers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's it's a it, it's it's something that that. That has been predicted would happen. So there, there's where you go by the gray swan. Sure, sure. And, they, and they, or the gray, uh, gray rhino. Gray rhino. They, they, yeah, truly. And the, the rapidity, if you will, the speed with which a virus can can move today is significantly faster than what it did in the Spanish flu in 1918. What has been Much remarkable faster. with with our focus in healthcare has been what the impact of healthcare was, and this goes back to the sort of the black swan of healthcare. No right. one, I've never seen a report, I've never seen anybody write about anything that said that they could envision um, healthcare being basically ground to a halt, literally stopped. Um, I read a report recently that hospitals were losing about $1.5 billion a day yeah. um, because of, of what, what generally we talked about, elective surgeries. Um, it has been remarkable to see that, 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 that physicians have had to shut down their practices, um, both as precaution and, and also because patients don't want to go visit them. And right. we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later in, in the program. Um, and, 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 and just how everything has come down to a, to a halt. And then what is it going to take to move further? You would think that because of the pandemic, hospitals are doing very well. But as I said, they're losing $1.5 billion a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and many hospitals outside of the hotspots, and we all know where the hotspots is, at least in the United States are, are, are well, well below capacity. And it, every single day, I see three or four times a day reports that are coming in of hospital furloughing staff cutting staff, close, you know, closing facilities. Um, and there's a lot of question as to how do, we, how do we come back from that. Yes. Yes. No, I totally agree. Well, you know, it's, it's been, it's, it's, as you've said, it's been reported and at uh, $1.5 billion per day. The question is how long can healthcare delivery continue uh, with, with hospitals that are losing that amount of money? And, and it's, Certainly, the larger hospital systems, uh, the tenants, the HCAs, they have a little bit of reserve. But what about the smaller rural and and uh, and and uh, the, the 
small private and public hospitals. They, uh, they've got to be really struggling. Well, not only are they struggling, but the, the government and, 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 and the leadership um, came up with a couple of attempts to solve, to help them, okay, uh, to help them collect both as large and small. For example, they came up with a plan to advance both hospitals um, and doctors a almost like a prepayment of Medicare services. So I read this morning that there was a hospital that received $800 million. And you'd say, well, that solves our problem. No, here's the problem. It doesn't. Because that is $800 million. Think about it as prepaying for a purchase. Right. Okay? So, yeah, they got the cash. But now they have to provide those services in the future. And as we've just said, because the patients are not coming in the door, it's not like, okay, that's like the next 30 days. They'll provide the services, and they'll be back to sort of zero. No, right now, no one knows how long it'll take that system to go. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that happened not just for hospitals, but that happened for doctors. Every doctor that bills Medicare got a Medicare prepayment um, last month. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. I think at the beginning of last month. Was that 14% well, or something? Yeah, of, which is basically their... they said, here, you know, here's a proportion of what you're going to get. We're going to give you the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually... Now, there's no question unless they close. And by the way, there's a question right now how many doctors will literally close. Normally, I would say, well, the hospitals will buy them you know, or, or pick them up as employees. I can't say that today. No. Um, we could talk about later about you know, private equity, who's bought a lot of doctors over the last four or five years. Will they pick up? Will yeah. they, uh, well, only specialists, as a matter of fact. Right. Um, will they pick them up? It's possible. I doubt it yeah. because it's really hard to forecast. Uh, what's going to happen <clears throat> in two years? We'll revert to some kind of mo- normal. There's no question. Maybe even a year. Okay. The question is, do we revert to more normal as far as medical uh, utilization in in two months, three months, five months, or that year? Mm-hmm. Okay. We know, for example, that 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 the baby boomers and there's still a, a, almost ten years of baby boomers going into Medicare, which is a big number, are retiring at a rate of nine, almost ten thousand a day. So that, that, the thing about, you know, demographically doesn't really change, but you can change behavior. You can change circumstances. So what people have been doing, and we could talk about that also, um, and, and you've got some of those facts, is how many people are deferring care? How many people are deferring procedures? How many people are not going in for checkups? Um, right. I'm sure that many are also not going in for uh for you know refills of prescriptions now mm-hmm. telemedicine can play a role and we started talking about that last time right but the challenge with telemedicine is there's only so many things that can be done in telemedicine my particular interest has always been physician practices and in particularly or, or, or with a lot of focus in primary care and people would be stunned to know that that physicians okay um are, are a relatively small part of healthcare, um, certainly well below hospitals. Um, and, and primary care physicians are sort of a sub-part of that physician part. So if you calculate all of the expenditures in the U.S. healthcare system, um, primary cares, and that there, you could expand the primary care, obviously, in you know family practice, general practitioners, um, pediatricians, sure. OBGYNs, OBGYNs right? and, and you can expand it a little bit more. Right. But as a class, pri- primary care physicians generate or receive about 8 9% of all healthcare expenditures. However, they account for 50% of all That's visits. Right. That's right. That's a staggering number. 
Mm-hmm. So our, the vulnerability, yeah, the whole hist- system is vulnerable, but the most vulnerable happen to be the primary care physicians, not only because they see a disproportionate amount of patients for a low cost, but also because they have they see those patients at a lower cost basis, they also have, in my experience, the least amount of reserves. Yeah, their resilience is, is they, very low. Right, right. With all due respect, and I can tell you because I've written checks for these, when you have a, a, a radiologist or a neurologist and their salary is, you know, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars. They're incredibly valuable, and it takes, you know, literally decades to get those specialties. But you have probably a lot more resilience when you're making eight, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars a year than when you're making two hundred thousand dollars. Well, and even and, and even at that, I mean, the two hundred thousand, uh, if you will, the primary care physician typically has quite a bit of additional overhead with with uh, the, the rental, the lease, or the ownership of, of uh, space, employees, and so on, uh, specialties you mentioned typically do not have a large overhead in terms of staff and, and location. They, they'll work out of a hospital or, or some other location, but, uh, you know, they do not. And I, you know, back to your point, too, about people deferring and, and delaying and, and uh, postponing treatment you know that's that's building a wave. I think it was the Kaiser Foundation that found in in their survey nearly fifty percent of the people had uh, had deferred and uh, had had postponed. Yet eleven percent of that number their their situation, their cases, uh, their medical condition worsened. So what we're doing is is really seeing a build up and a build toward um, a a large increasing demand that will flow into back into some of the primary care certainly but will to I think flow into the hospitals yet because of some of the other uh, situations we have uh, still responding to the the pandemic with social distancing and so on the ability to see the same number of patients on a daily basis is going to be greatly reduced so we've got uh, we've got a choke point being created here and and a real problem from a not only a point of care with uh, losing some some practices, but also because we're uh, you know and, and we're saying that that we could we could see up to twenty percent or more of primary care physicians closing. So those um, those statistics really should be alarming. And the last thing I'll mention is that all of these statistics so far are lagging indicators. Um, the situation is growing worse as we go forward and not better, uh, at least as far as the numbers I'm seeing. So I guess that, that, that reflects back on a lot of different things. It reflects, I guess I'll ask, because it, it seems that it reflects both on, on hospitals, it, it reflects on outpatient, uh, some of the outpatient facilities, radi- radiation therapy, uh, the uh, surgery centers, rehab centers. Um, what, so what, 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 what are your thoughts? Because I, I think you know, the, there's, there's some issues that um, that need to be surfaced, and we need to discuss because solutions have to be found. So let me let me read to you some of the headlines in the last two weeks, uh, maybe three weeks. Um, that that are really interesting, and these come from let me see CNBC, Reuters, Wall Street Journal, 
New York Times, Time Magazine, um, more from Bloomberg, and, and and this is this is the one that that that, that catches everybody who, who could read it. Doctors face pay cuts, furloughs, and supply shortages. Corona pushes primary care to the brink. Yeah, primary care is being devastated by COVID nineteen. It must be saved. The cap- the pandemic has made the U.S. healthcare crisis far more dire. We must fix the system. Why, in the midst of a U.S. health crisis, there are major challenges for doctors to access access their medical records. Um, could the coronavirus cause the collapse of our healthcare financing system? Um, coronavirus is exposing deficiencies in U.S. healthcare. The, the pandemic could put your doctor out of business. Yeah. I mean, and it keeps yeah. going. Yeah, and that's a big concern for a lot of patients because they've been with their physician for a long time. They have the rapport, the relationship. Uh, they know that uh, the 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 doctor knows their history, and so they're they're very concerned about having to a the ability to find someone if if that physician does uh, close their practice and and start up with someone new. Uh, so. Well, one of the challenges is 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 that consumers are literally talking about it, and they're saying that that many of them. Um, I think the number was 81% were concerned whether their physician would be there. Uh, 18% were concerned about uh, accessing their medical records, you know, what happens right. uh, if the physician closes down in their practice. Um, it, it's a pretty big problem, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yet, yet there is opportunities out there. Um, you were talking about you know, how it affects the market. Every segment of what you said is affected differently. So the hospitals are, are are seeing the impact because the hospital have the most expensive part of healthcare. They have to keep their emergency rooms open. They have to keep their, their nurses and doctors on staff. ICU. One of the things that has happened in the last decade, a little over the last decade, um, is hospitals have grown dramatically in the number of employed physicians. It used to be, certainly back in, let's call it the even the 80s, is that that the hospitals had very few doctor employees. Um, In some cases, in rural communities, for example, they might have had emergency room physicians because they couldn't bring them in, and the hospitals would literally hire them, and they'd be on staff at the the hospital. But over the last 10 years, as, as you've gotten a push towards more of a comprehensive delivery system, in part before the, because of the Affordable Care Act, and, and you know, and ACOs that we've talked about before, that drove a lot of hospitals to go out there and acquire or employ doctors. Mm-hmm. So you know, depending on, on who writes the estimates, sometimes as much as twenty five percent of the physicians in the United States are directly tied to hospitals. That also brings a burden to the hospitals mm-hmm. um, because generally those those doctors are hard to furlough by contractual contracts or contractual uh, conditions is hard to furlough, uh, in part because they have non-competes. Mm-hmm. Um, they, the hospital obviously doesn't want a doctor taking its patients the way the hospital would see it. Um, so those doctors uh, are, are very high, as you would face, sort of a fixed nut to have. Plus, the facilities that the doctors work in you know, are outside the hospital mostly. They're really, it's really more of a hub and spoke. So you've got you know, the doctor's offices out into the community that are employed by the hospitals and they sort of feed the hospital um, and, and, you know, provide admission to the hospital. At the end of the day, the hospital, um, 
survives financially because of the procedures they have. It, it, you know, we've talked about in the past about being uh, in the hospitality business, you know, and, and they're a, a really, really high-end, really high-quality, you know, resort, hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've got food and they've got room service and they've got the procedures and everything else. Right. Um, so hospitals are particularly vulnerable. Um, we have uh, 5,000 hospitals in the United States. Most of them are nonprofits. Um, and, and most of them are relatively small community hospitals. I, I don't remember the exact average, but I, I you know, it, the, the, the number is probably around 200 beds if you average. There's some really big hospitals. Right. Jackson Memorial here in Miami has like 1,500 beds. Uh, and there's a lot of hospitals in the 700, 800, 900 bed category, big regional hospitals that provide to a community. Um, and there's a lot of hospitals or rural hospitals that have, I think the smallest I've seen is like 25 beds. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot in the 25 to 200. So it's a big chunk. And like I said, most of them are nonprofits, especially when you get outside the major metropolitan areas. In Florida, I don't know if we're lucky or not, but we have you know a, a lot of uh, mixture between for-profit and nonprofit. Certainly in South Florida, you know the greater Miami area, um, th- which includes us, uh, the greater Orlando area. Uh, you know everybody knows Orlando because of Disney World. You've got uh, uh, the same sort of mix in the Tampa, St. Petersburg, which is on the west coast of Florida. And then up to the Jacksonville. And then everything else is sort of either rural or semi-rural in Florida. And most of those areas are, are non-for-profits. They're, they're literally started as community. Many of them were faith, faith-based hospitals that grew into you know larger medical centers. They're going to be in trouble. And by the way, so is going to be um, their surgery centers. Yeah. Uh, hospitals, uh, you know, have you know, hospitals have inpatient and they have outpatient. outpatient then right. they have surgery centers. Surgery rehab, and, 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 they, and then they have sometimes they have multiple surgery centers mm-hmm. um, that are either on campus or slightly off campus. Well, and you have rehab. Right. They obviously have oncology. Mm-hmm. Those are all things that can affect it. My sh- one of the things that shocked me the most was when I saw that people are not going to their oncologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 creating a problem. I know that one of the challenges that hospitals have had um, is dialysis, yeah. because dialysis patients don't have weeks; they they literally have days. Days is right. Uh, so there's been a challenge in doing that, and I know there's some research, um, and there may be some trials right now, literally of having sort of in-home dialysis. And they may be going on. I'm just not. That's nothing near the specialties that I like to look at. Yeah. Well, I I want to uh, I want to continue this because you did mention one of the things that I think piqued some interest uh, that I had, and that is with the specialists, the uh, the high-end specialists, and the uh, degree of investment by private equity in these specialty uh, doctors and, and practices. Uh, what uh, That's a little bit of a unique kind of situation to some degree because we don't see that in the primary care side. Um, <clears throat> but how is all of this beginning to affect? Uh, what are you seeing the effect in the private equity investment world, and and with respect to these specialists? Well, one of the challenges that that one of the the challenge, you know, if if you're in the business of of putting capital to work in private equity, is finding opportunities. And what has happened again with this growth that was tied to um, the Affordable Care Act and the hospital acquisitions. Um, many in private equity saw an opportunity, mm. which is something that I, you know, I've lived through a couple of times, is sort of rolling up physicians. 
And what they've decided to do is they went for sort of where the money was. So the specialists were um, anesthesiologists, um, were neurologists, uh, radiologists, and, 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 and very highly qualified, very highly, very expensive uh, physicians. And they've been acquired. I mean, literally, public companies have been taken private. And right now, there are many of those high-end specialists um, that, that, that are owned by private equity investments, literally in the billions. And this is, these are not little stuff. Yeah. Um, and a few of them are probably very, very vulnerable financially. And the reason for that is when the revenue drops dramatically, um, then and you've got these highly paid physicians who are professionals, you know, you've got a huge gap between, you know, your expenses and your costs. I'm expecting that at least a couple of those huge private equity deals are going to are going to implode and they'll be restructured. Mm-hmm. And you also have a little bit of that also going on with urgent care. Urgent care has been a very, very big, you know, uh, pet, I would say, of, of private equity also. Um, and urgent care is probably in a better position. Um, but they also have very, very high cost uh, because they're... The, you know, sort of think about it as an emergency room light. Um, they usually have pretty good doctors, uh, very good doctors trained in emergency medicine. They have, you know, uh, diagnostic equipment. They're usually in pretty good geographic locations. Mm-hmm. So you'll find them in, in nice real estate, um, usually in the suburbs. Yeah. So it's not it's not cheap stuff. So they're also very expensive. And, and literally at one point, I think I lost track at 40 or 50 investments that have been sort of in, in urgent care facilities. Yeah. And by the way, urgent care has played a, a really big role. I'm not minimizing that. As a matter of fact, I many times would rather go there, certainly if it's if a doctor's not available, urgent care is a great place to go if it's sure. not life-threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been stitched up a couple of times. I talked about that the other day um, in my hand, which is what came to mind, the thought. Um, so those are all going to be vulnerable. Um, and there's going to be, I think, a lot of restructuring. I I, I, cons- I believe in my DNA that healthcare, that, that this black, was, has become a black swan for healthcare, um, is, is, is going to alter the industry. And we talked about last, last uh, podcast about you know, 10 years of, of, of natural evolution being compressed yes. into two or two and a half years. I'm 100% convinced every day, every hour, I think that's being confirmed. Well, I would totally agree with that because... Um you know, we have this this pandemic has uncovered some weaknesses we did not know really existed or did not think they were as deep as what these are uh, and have proven to be. And and so clearly we've got to bring solutions and bring solutions very quickly. Uh, and and my, one of my biggest concerns is Really, at the point of uh, uh, the points of care in community-based healthcare, uh, our our frontline uh, primary care physicians are are really and 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 you captured it very well. I think you said uh, they see fifty percent of the visits, but make only uh, anywhere from five to eight percent in terms of the total revenue uh, that is expended. So that's uh that's an area that we somehow need to address and. Uh, well, let me let me give you another couple of headlines. This headline um, was from Stat News, which is a healthcare only um, uh, publication. It basically the headline says, "When COVID nineteen pandemic is over, healthcare must not return to business as usual." Hmm. Financial Times 
okay, which as you know comes from uh, across the pond, I think is it like saying, and from the UK, uh, literally said how coronavirus broke America's healthcare system. Uh, Vox News reported headline, coronavirus is exposing all of the weaknesses in the US healthcare system. Yeah. So what happened is the COVID crisis has, as you noted, has has exposed the the cracks have now become you know canyons mm-hmm. in things that we knew were were challenging. What happened is we saw now cracks and fissures in places we're not sure that were supposed to be there, and we go back to the analysis that during the recession of two thousand eight two thousand nine in the United States, healthcare's uh, employment did not trend line did not change yeah. at all. Not not it, there was not even a blip. It's a safe place to be. Exactly. And yet, you've got Bloomberg announcing, you know, recently that said that 1.5 million people uh, in healthcare were unemployed uh, last month. That, that That's never happened. There is no precedence for that. I can tell you that over and over for years, for literally the 32 years almost I've been in healthcare, I've been saying healthcare is recession proof. Because for 32 years it was, or actually a lot longer. But the 30 year I was part of it. I don't know how this is going to be looked at, you know, uh, historically, uh, but that's where you got the black swan. And now we're going back to the, 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 the conversation of, you know, how do we lead this into my golden rat? And, and let me tell you uh, why I think this is going to be a, that kind of a moment. If we go back into history, and this has fascinated me a little bit. The Renaissance, I, I love the Renaissance painters, okay? And, and it was always fascinated me, sort of the Renaissance, what, you know, the whole sort of started, obviously, as the Italian Renaissance. Right. Um, historians either either give credit or take blame or, or give blame to what was the, 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 the Black Death, the, the, yeah. the plague, the plague. That, that preceded the Renaissance. And and I remember re- I've read a couple of books about that 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 the analysis was that without the Black Death there would have been no Renaissance, because part of it was people were you know subsistence farming, and everything was around food, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden sadly, catastrophically, with with the death of such a large percentage of the population in Europe, there was now an abundance of food there was an abundance of time, mm-hmm. and then you ended up with you know sort of the the Da Vinci's and 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 and, and the Michelangelo's and and, and the the everything Vinci's, that yeah. and the, the, the Medici's who had all the wealth that you know sponsoring that in um, in Florence, um, but you know I was reading an article about this and this is sort of what got to the idea and let me let me read this this is about the the title is how the bubonic plague made the Italian Re- Italian Renaissance possible, and here's a conclusion. The Black Death devastated Italian society in the middle of the 14th century. It led to a great social, economic, cultural, and religious changes. After the initial horrors of the plague, Italian society staged a spectacular recovery. Italy became richer than before. The impact of the plague reduced the influences of the Catholic Church, and the culture became more secular. The new social mobility meant that individuals came to be respected. The Black Death unleashed the forces in Italy, Italian society that made the Renaissance possible. So, back to our rat. Okay, um, we're told. I remember reading this in school, and I think it's still pretty much the truth. Is that 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 
uh, epidemiologists now look back, and I think that they did, and they said that the rat was one of the biggest culprits for you know for for the the spread the right. spread right. of of what became the Black Death. Right. Um, so you you sort of indirectly or maybe obviously directly blame the rat for it. They I mean, were, they're, they're culprit. They were a vector. Right. Yes. So if, if you if you if you now, based on what I just read, say that we would not have had a renaissance the way we envision it today without having, you know, the, the horror uh, of the Black Death and you blame the rat for it. And that that's what, what gave me the idea. I'm like, OK, and I guess in your in my menagerie, as you call it, my, my pet zoo, I guess I said, well, then then the rat turned out to be sort of we we. An American term of the, the the silver lining in a cloud in a rain cloud is the rat ended up being at least for for, for history. Remember that also started the Enlightenment period, right. that probably led you know some connection to even the American Revolution. Okay, that was mm -hmm. the era of Enlightenment. So mm -hmm. th those are all have their roots around that same thing. So what I'm trying to be is optimistic, and I am optimistic about all of these changes in COVID. Um, and what's happened to healthcare, that there's going to be a healthcare renaissance. 110% of it is going to happen. Well, I think we so, have to. Yes. Well, first of all, we, we want to do it as an optimist, but we also have to see that if all of these things change the way we're describing it, then you're going to end up with a healthcare renaissance uh, in the 21st century, whether it's 2020 or 2021 or 2022, I, I don't know, but it's going to happen right. because people are not going to forget these circumstances. We have to spark an evolution, a transformation right. in healthcare in order to pick pick up and 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 uh, correct these, as you said, the big caverns and canyons now that have 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 been found in the healthcare system. Well, the, it's probably be repaired. Right. One of the most overused term, and I've overused it, is sort of that that healthcare revolution, healthcare transformation, all of those things, mm -hmm. okay, uh, are now going to have to happen. Yeah. Okay. And By fast, necessity, and, they're going to have to happen faster than they would have otherwise. Faster than they would. No, for sure, faster. The question yeah. is only: is it is it three times faster, two times faster, or five times faster? Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. I think it's going to be four or five times faster. It's going to be really fast because people are learning and you adapt. So you're going to have a healthcare renaissance. It, it's in the bag, as you might want to say. So my premise is, it's sort of, the, how do you call that? Other than the word renaissance, which is a great word, and, and I'm particularly fond of it, is that's where I came up with the idea of, of creating this the term, um, the, the, the golden rat, mm -hmm. and, and goes back to China. Uh, it goes back to this is the year of the rat. I think I, I think yeah. you learned that from last time. So I think there is a golden rat, okay, phenomenon that probably has already started. We can't tell, yeah. but it will for sure start if it hasn't already started. That will help transform healthcare. That is going to make it much more consumer centric. Okay, that is going to make it much more efficient. That is going to make it much more resilient. Um, that is going to eliminate a, in my opinion. I'm pretty sure a tremendous amount of regulations. Okay, literally, I had a conversation today about the transformation that we've had with telemedicine. And though I think, by the way, it, we may have seen a peak, at least a temporary peak. That trend line has definitely been moved up mm -hmm. um, because you were able to pay doctors uh, for telemedicine for the same thing they were getting in an office visit. Um, the government, the federal government, basically uh, using the emergency powers, is is suspended 
the interstate relationship of right. medical licenses. Right. Okay. And and I can tell you this back in the 96, 97, we owned a radiology center. We own a, a MRI center. We were trying to get UCLA to grow a partnership with us to sort of read or supervise our radiologists here. <laughs> okay. It was done for two reasons. One is we wanted the best we could find. And, and, and secondarily, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to admit, it was also a marketing strategy to, against our competition and say, listen, we not only have great radiologists, we're being supervised by UCLA Medical Center. And the problem we found out, so lived it, was that in order for those radiologists to review those MRIs and, and affix their name to them, um, even in supervisory, they had to be licensed in the state of Florida. Florida yeah. Okay, so that was suspended. I don't think it'll be permanent. I think there'll be more reciprocity, which is the right thing to do. So what happens is, I think, but all of those things are going to drive. I mean, we talked about in one of our earlier, I think it was the first one we talked about, Governor Cuomo complaining that they didn't have enough hospital beds. And I wasn't there, and I wouldn't be there, and I would be too respectful. But he has to recognize whether then or now or in the future that it was the archaic, okay, Byzantine regulations in the state of New York controlling certificate of needs for hospitals that capped hospitals. Yeah. So those regulations, I think, are all going to are all going to change, and and I I do think that doctors are going to be paid more for telemedicine, but I don't think the government, and I don't think insurance companies are going to pay the same for telemedicine as office. And I'll give you the example is for two reasons. One is it takes about fifty percent less um, cost to produce a telemedicine interaction yeah. between a doctor and a patient. Yes. So it doesn't make any sense for for basically uh, the government or an insurance company to pay you know the Probably. same rate to subsidize the second the, yeah. the second component is it, it is it if you pay that much there will be let's say gaps in documentation okay so there'll be a challenge an economic challenge because it, it will be it, it it's just it, it'd be too easy it'd be too easy and I think at the end of the day, telemedicine has a, a very, very powerful role to play, but that very powerful role is for doctors who are seeing those patients on a regular basis, expanding the telemedicine, okay? Right, Versus, for their own, their, their, their own patient pool. E exactly, because yeah. telemedicine you know, has also some weaknesses. As a matter of fact, we know from reports that telemedicine uh, you know, was screaming right after COVID started, but I can tell you that the peak of telemedicine was in late March and early April. Mm. And ever since then, even though the trend line is starting from a higher base, it's actually it actually has come down. Right. The other thing about telemedicine is also has a bias towards age. Um, I looked at the statistics that saw telemedicine practice increase by six hundred percent okay during this period, which is mm -hmm. which is which is reasonable. Um, the problem was that the when you break out the age of the patients, let me give you the number. 23% were 23, 24 years or younger. Let's be realistic. 23-year-olds are pretty healthy, okay? Yeah. 45%, I'm sorry, 31% uh, were between 25 and 44. A little bit, you know, a little more issues, more maybe more sports-related issues and things like that. 45%, mm -hmm. um, the peak was between age 45 and 64, Okay. Um, we know that, okay? You, you've got a little bit more than, than sport accidents that can go wrong. Right. Only 1% were over the age of 65. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Which is where most of healthcare expended, is spent. So it goes back to our conversation. 
10,000 people a day are joining Medicare every single day for the next nine years, for sure. And Medicare costs are going to double on a real dollars over the next decade. And we're going to see a lot of movement, which maybe we could talk about next time, is about sort of the role that managed care is going to play in, in, tele, in, in, in medicine, the way that primary care's role is going to be in managed care, okay, and the way technology sort of feeds into that opportunity. So the summary here, which is how we started the last podcast, was that I believe that that, that gray rhino, which is COVID, has led to a black swan in healthcare that is leading to the golden rat or the golden opportunity to really transform healthcare. Yeah, and I, uh, I see what you, uh, I see what you mean. I see how your zoo works. So uh, I think, I think you're right. I, I think that we've talked uh, in the podcast so far about the, the the state of the universe of healthcare. We've talked about now. We've we've reiterated some of the problems. I'd like uh, I'd like it if we could the next uh, the next go around if we can talk about some specific solutions that we see to these problems because I think there's some solutions that can be put to work immediately that will bring some measurable and material changes and benefits. So, uh, well, I think it's great. I think it's a great uh, ending to this this podcast, and hopefully uh, we'll get to this the, the next one, probably the the last, the fourth in this series about COVID. I think we'll move on to other subjects after. Um, and uh, I want to thank all of our listeners. Thank yeah. you for your, your, your contribution. And hopefully everybody finds it uh, uh, enlightening or at least informative. Well, we're and we're, we're always ready for any comments anyone has. Yeah, and we're, we're, we're grateful for the comments and, uh, and that that we've gotten so far. They've all been good. So, Well, thank you for everyone who is listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To learn more about our company, please check out our website at oxiohealth.io. That's www.oxiohealth.io.